If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you there? It is podcast time. Lots and lots and lots going on. But what, you know what we're going to do today? We're going to try and put some flesh on the bones of a lot of that good talk in Glasgow about climate change, etc. And we're going to look at some practical examples of what countries can do to accelerate, number one, their responsible position with respect to the environment. And, John, to measure the thing, how are you, Head? I'm very good. I'm we very are good. Coming back to your favorite place. <laughs> Just to tell you, yeah. you go for a pint with this guy. <laughs> you're watching the football. And he said, you see things like you're watching United, who I know, fairest to United fans are up and down. And you'll say things like, Do you know Ole Gully Skullshire is Norwegian? <laughs> I never said that in my I life. I said I don't give a shit. I didn't even know that. Whether he is or not. <laughs> So just bear anyway, with me. Bear I, with me. I had a very good. What, what are those kind of trips that politicians go on? Junkets, Ex- junkets, and exploratory. Exploratory, Jun- yeah. yeah. So, so that's what I did on your on your large political expense account. <laughs> but we have somebody who's come up with John Medham in Norway, and we got to speak to him the other night, and it's a fantastic idea, which is something really practical, John. Yeah. It's called a climate change budget. And That's Oslo, right. which John has now been given the free man of the city <laughs> for, think, his Al, keys me for his <laughs> Al Fresco promotion, okay, shameless promotion of Oslo. His name is Gauta Hegerup. He is in charge of a fascinating, a fascinating, the Norwegian chapter, they're like Hell's Angels, the Norwegian chapter of a intercity movement called C40. And he's also responsible for what they call the climate budget in a climate change budget in Oslo. So let's go to the freezing north where John feels at home to Norway. We are now going to Oslo. Uh, you will not, uh, if you're listening to the podcast, be unaware that John went to Norway a couple of weeks ago. In fact, he hasn't start, stopped talking about Norway. He's the brand ambassador for Norway and Ireland. He's on a retainer in high-end kronas from the Norwegian Sovereign... I'm planning on going back very from soon. From the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund is spending a fortune on keeping their fine consultant, John Davis, in a propaganda role saying, Norway is fab. 
But we are going to Norway because one of the people that John heard about but didn't meet is Gauta Hagerup, who is part of and policy director of an extraordinary and frankly, an organization that Irish cities should be part of called C40, which is cities thinking about climate change, about sustainability, about policies to make our cities leading edge contributors to reducing our carbon footprint, number one, and solving, or at least going some way towards solving climate change. Gata, how are you? Great. Okay, so just nice so you know... You. Nice. Thanks for inviting me. Not at all. So you, so, so you know we have a Norwegian fan over here. Next, he's going to be listening to Viking heavy metal. Already am. And it's all good. <laughs> exactly. Gata, I am fascinated by this organization that you are a member of. Tell me exactly what the organization is. Well, C40 is the world's largest climate network for megacities of the world. Uh, 97 cities are members, and they are uh, among the biggest cities in the world. They, in all the, altogether, the 10% of the people on the planet live in these cities. Uh, 25% of the world's GDP is produced in these cities. And the membership of a C40 uh, city in the network is carried by the mayor of the city. So it has very strong political buy-in. And the goal of of all the cities and the goal of the network is to make all these cities do 1.5 degrees Paris Agreement targets uh, implemented in their city. So making all these mayors and all these cities do their part of the 1.5 degree Paris Agreement targets. Now, the extraordinary thing uh, is that no Irish city, we can come back to that, but it's worth reiterating for our audience in particular, not one Irish city is a member of this. It shows two things, I think, and we can talk about this uh, in a little while. Number one is the fact that Irish cities do not have sufficient centralized power. Irish power is all centralized in the government. They are terrified of having directly elected mayors and our decentralized power whether it's tax raising or whether it's policy implementing, but you need to have both really. That's number one. So even if an Irish city mayor did rock up, it would be more cosmetic than real. And the second thing I also think is maybe we're not taking this as seriously as we should. But Gauda, tell me what sort of initiatives are orchestrated at the C40 level and how do they percolate down before I talk about Oslo itself? Well, the cities, uh, the, the whole idea here is that the cities need to learn from each other. We have very short time towards t- 2030, or we had short time to save the planet, to, to reach the 1.5 degree target. So here is, it's a question of steal with pride, copy paste, find a solution that works best in any city and, and paste copy paste it in your own city and, and scale it up. It's a scaling machine. It's a, it's a copy paste machine. It's about cities learning from one another. That's the whole idea. And it is, it's a broad range of activities. I mean, it's, it's about transportation. It's about buildings, energy efficiency. It's about air quality. Uh, and now lately, of course, also post-COVID, green and just uh, recovery. So the whole thing here is that mayors learn from each other and city administrations, city bureaucrats learn best practice from each other. Now, can I ask you about Oslo? Is the Oslo mayor directly elected and has executive powers? Can I ask you how it's structured just before we talk about 
the, the what's going on? Uh, yes, yes, yes. The people uh, elect for the parties, and the parties select their mayor. Okay, but the mayor has tax raising powers within Oslo itself. Yes, and so therefore they have a budget internally that they can say, okay, we're going to deploy this budget here or there. So the book does actually stop with the mayor. If you're an Oslo citizen, if you're the average Osloer and you're knocking around and you're fed up about something or you think that we could do something better here or whatever, you you know that the book stops with the mayor. Is that the case? Yeah, you can elect those politicians that would allocate resources the way you would like it to, to be allocated. Okay, so the, the, so it's kind of ring fence because here in Ireland we've got this. Oh, it's weird... partly. I mean, of course, there's a lot of, of stately money as well. Sure, sure. They, the municipal money they have uh, they have authority over some parts of their own budget. Absolutely. Okay. Now, one thing I was fascinated was this idea of a carbon budget. Explain this to me because this is something that Oslo is doing. What is it? It seems to be highly effective in zeroing in at responsibility. So explain this to me. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting concept they have developed in Oslo called the climate budget. And uh, the whole idea is that it shifts the focus from the long-term targets, the visions that most cities and nations have, 2030, 2040, 2050, even some 2060. Can you believe that? Uh, If we are going to save the planet, we need to bring this down to much shorter term. We need to talk about what are we going to do in 2022, 23, 24 in order to reach those long-term tar- tar- uh, targets. Oslo has a very ambitious target of uh, cutting CO2 emissions to 95% uh, by 2030. That gives a trajectory line from now on until then, uh, which is quite steep. And that makes it possible for them to do the math and calculate down on annual level what we need to cut. So... What they've started to do is they've started to creating budgets like we create the fiscal budget with the monetary. In Norway, it's the kroner. In your country, is the, the euro, I guess. Yeah. So they made a parallel budget with CO2 at the end instead of the NOC, which is the Norwegian kroner. So the whole idea here is to, to, to do the math, calculate down what needs to be cut here, list the biggest emission sources in the city, get it in like a budget and see who needs to cut what and where. So, for example, in a city like Dublin and most Irish cities, I'd say it's transport and construction are the two big polluters in the city. How are you dealing yeah. with them in, in Oslo? One thing which is important here is that it is no longer the climate and environment uh, department's responsibility to make it happen. They are the, the advisors who, who, who calculate it. But then it's the mayor of finance who makes this implemented in the organization. Because if it's one thing we know, it's that the best the, the best placed person in an organization to make everyone jump when he says jump, it's the CFO. Yes, exactly. The CFO creates the budgets. So the CFO in the city of Oslo creates both the fiscal budget and the CO2 budget. But the CO2 budget is on the advice from the, the sustainability department, and they have calculated how much the, the transportation department needs to cut. And so the CFO writes it in into the budget that this is need, needs to be cut. So this amazed me. Let's, let's take something like construction. So Dublin, I'm not sure about Oslo. I was there a couple of years ago. I haven't been there for a while. Gorgeous city, and we can talk about it for, for a long time. But John, of course, will, uh, will embellish. Beautiful uh, city. Beautiful city. <laughs> anyway, uh, 
what I want to talk about, let's say you, you take construction. Dublin's going through this big construction boom, stupidly, I think, in offices when we need to build houses, but that's for another day. Would it be the case that, for example, you would say to a, a developer, okay, you can build this 10-story building and la, 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 but you need to be compliant with your carbon budget. And if yes. you are not compliant, you don't get planning permission. Yes. And that's exactly what has happened in Oslo, which is a really interesting story because they calculated down the, the emissions sources and found out, okay, construction machinery is a really big sinner in the city. And so they said in the public procurement, uh, they, they spread out to, to the companies that you can only get this contract if you can do the job with either emission-free or fossil-free uh, machinery. And this is an interesting story because they responded positively. They said, yeah, that, thank you for challenging us on that. We would love to have that machinery, but it doesn't exist. This is like an electric, so they, this is like an electric digger or an electric crane. Or At the time in 2016, it didn't exist. But then they agreed. The private sector said to the, the city of Oslo, if you will keep this in your procurement and just give us a couple of years, we will for sure develop solutions. And then three years later, in 2019, the first electrical digger was, was uh, made. And then the world's first complete emission-free construction site was in place in Oslo. Wow. wow. And this is due to the public procurement that Oslo pushed. And now there are more than 100 electric diggers in the market in Oslo. And it's rising. It's becoming more and more popular to buy electric diggers because it's needed in order to get a public contract. That is amazing. And can I just ask you just about private contracts too? Because, okay, okay you've got the public contract, let's say the state wants to build, you know, whatever, a, a building or a block of flats or whatever. In terms of the private, let's say, is it also a stipulation of private building that you need to be carbon neutral? Well, yeah, here is, uh, to be honest, the development of the climate budget in Oslo is still in progress. Okay. Uh, and we have so far controlled our own agencies and our own procurements okay. and our own special planning and policy makings. But we are in dialogue also with, with the private sector in the city that, you know, trying to push them to also start procuring with the, with the same uh, demand. And of course, they are really geared up to this. So I think we'll see that coming. But for the time being, it's more like a dialogue to make them follow suit. But of course, this is public sector needs to be the pushy part here because this is how you make innovation happen by using your public procurement muscle to, to yes. demand new solutions. And tell me about uh, electric cars, because again, when I, I live beside a part of the street, which is a bus station in Dunleary, a small part outside Dublin. But we have like, we, we usually have about five or six big buses revving up all day. Fellas and girls having smokes, the drivers outside having a chat, leaving the engines on. And although Dublin has made great strides in the types of buses, they're still pretty noxious things, right? They're still belching out fumes, okay? What have you done in public transport over there? Well, it's the same story, actually, on, on the transportation agency. They've started procuring electrical buses. Uh, they've also started to use biodiesel. But here is, this is an interesting thing, though, because here is where the city and the nation collides a little bit. Because 
national law uh, has made it more expensive with biodiesel, which is totally against what the city of Oslo wants. Uh, but this is just one of many examples of how cities in many ways are more progressive than nation states. And that's the same case in, in Norway. I mean, Oslo wants more than the national uh, government of Norway is able to, to allow them to. Is this because you're an oil producer? I don't want to go down that lane right now, but yes, perhaps. I don't know. Do you have uh, censorship in Norway? Oh my God, do you have Norwegian, <laughs> Norwegian oil police? But I presume it is. You produce lots of oil, so you're conflicted. You want to be nice, but the pan shilling and pence say, hold on a second, we've got to keep producing. But yeah. eventually Norway will have to choose. We will, we will, definitely. And that's a, that's a really headache here in the country. Absolutely. You know, so many people work in the oil and petrol uh, business and we need to cut it, but it's really, really hard for a Norwegian government to do that. It's kind of like being in the slavery business, you know, it's kind of unethical, yeah. it's getting smelly, yeah. but you used to make lots of money off it. But I mean, that is, that yeah. is a big dilemma for Norway. It is. For us working in the climate business like I do, it's really a headache to, to sit there and watch that we just have a government now that still will, are open to, to, to search for new oil fields. And they try to save themselves by saying that, well, we will, we will uh, do much research on green solutions in parallel. And, and, and yeah. But you see, this is always has amazed me about Ireland. I could understand Irish national policy if we had the biggest oil fields in Europe off the coast of Galway. I could understand Irish national yeah. policy uh, if we, for example, produced cars. Ireland hasn't produced a car ever. We've assembled for Ford many years ago. So, in a bizarre way, we have a country that should be accelerating profoundly its renewables because in actual fact, we have wind energy because A, we don't produce oil and B, we don't produce trucks or cars or anything. So the value added for Ireland in every new car sold in this country is zero. It's actually zero. In actual fact, it's negative. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't have an aggressive green agenda, which makes no sense to me as an economist at all. In the Norwegian sense, I can understand you're a bit conflicted because you've got all this stuff gushing out of the... Uh, the North Atlantic and into your back pockets and into your sovereign wealth fund, et cetera. Can I just conclude on this issue, though, of cities being leaders? Because it has always been the case that the metropolis has led in every area. It's always intellectually more interesting, morally more interesting, sexually more interesting, politically more interesting. The metropolis, since the Greeks placed the agora in the center of their society has been the place that things happen. How do you think cities are going to look like in the future? And the reason I say this is because the relationship between the city and the nation state, as you've just highlighted, can actually end up being quite a fractious one. Mm. Well, I, I think that what I see happening in all the C40 cities is, is a tremendous uh, job being done to transform them to, to more livable cities where the idea of making more greener zones, making more what we call the 15-minute city, where you can have access to both uh, to all your needs within uh, walking and biking distance. I mean, it's going to take time to transform because it's the way you build a city and much of the cities are, much of the infrastructure is already built. But it is, as you say, it's, it's a really transformative wave in so many ways in the cities of the world that... I think we're going to see a huge transformation in the next 
20, 30, 40 years, to be honest. I, th I think you're right. I mean, if you think that in around 1910 or 1915, the world was hijacked by the carbon industry and the car industry and architects and city planners and town planners all genuflected to the car. And that yes. was the history of the last 100 years. So it took 100 years to change our urban landscape into what it looks like now. And it may well take 50 more years to change back. Absolutely. It's going to take year, years because it's already built. But, I mean, you see so many examples of cities now just repainting lanes in the streets to biking and, and uh, so many even taking away cars and putting in trees and plants on top of uh, what it would used to be a, a car street. So there are absolutely actions possible to take in the already existing uh, built environment. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do, Gato. We will leave it there, but we'll be coming back. Gato, it's great to talk to you. Take care. Same to you. See Thanks you. a lot. Bye. You know, it's interesting, Mac, that, and we spoke about this before, about mayoral cities and having a directly elected mayor with a budget, yep. with some power. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we don't have that in Ireland. And C40 is a great example of how effective city mayors can be. No, you're absolutely right. And also it's, it's, it's city mayors who, as you said, are elected, so they're answerable to the people, but also have executive power so they can actually do something. Yeah. Because you remember years ago, and actually it's a fascinating discussion. You remember living in London years and years ago. I do. And Ken Livingstone was the mayor. I do, And the yeah. GLC yeah, was yeah, yeah, yeah. the operational hub of the city. Yeah. And Margaret Thatcher went against the GLC. Why? To take away their executive powers. Yeah. So the mayor would be nothing but a ceremonial figure, which we have had here. I mean, I have no... Do you know who the Dublin mayor is? It's your one... Um, your one shoe. M. Don't even Google it. You yeah. don't know. So obviously we don't know. But John, you're absolutely right. But one other thing on mayors was interesting talking to Gauta there is you can have all these targets. How do you measure them? Well, exactly. And and it's interesting you should say that, David. Right, it's the latest up to you. <laughs> do you know what they say in football? I'll just cross it, you knock it in. All right. Yeah. But actually, the person who I met over there, Claire Macquarie, she heads up and just launched actually the Irish Norwegian Chamber of Commerce. And the whole purpose of that is to bring Irish and Norwegian companies together, both public and private, for more collaboration, particularly with an eye on sustainability and green solutions. And one of those companies that she introduced me to was Cognite. And I spoke with Paula Doyle. She's an Irish woman. And Cognite are a Norwegian tech company, a software company. And they specialize in data, big data, and analyzing it for the purpose of making industry and industrial processes a lot more efficient and sustainable. And they work with all sorts of, of different industry sectors across the world, including oil and gas. But anyway, I, I started the conversation by asking her, how achievable does she think the green transition goals and carbon emission goals, how achievable are they in reality? So I think that the goals, they're certainly ambitious. And I believe that we're going to have to do things a lot differently than we do today to achieve them. 
you know, it's not just technology to the point, although that is an extremely important, important point, but it's also everything around the commercialization and the scale up of renewable energy. That is absolutely key. And that means that we need to ensure that companies who are who are developing renewable products or just operating in that space are really supported um, by regulatory factors or whatever needs to be put in place to enable them to commercialize and scale their operations. So is the answer to sustainability tech? Yes, it is. 100%. Technology is, as has always been the case through time with human, technology and innovation is what's going to is what's going to drive us forward. And I think, you know, from Cognite's perspective, because we are a very data-centered company, we say that sustainability is a data problem. Explain that to me. Well, basically, you know, how on earth can you make sustainable choices if you don't know, if you don't see what's going on? Mm-hmm. So how do you optimize for, how do you reduce your energy usage, for example? How do you optimize your emissions if you're not able to have access to your data and you're not able to apply kind of like machine learning and artificial intelligence to, to that data in a way that you can then trust it to make the operational decisions? And right now people just, they struggle with access to the data and of course it's also a lot around you know if you if you can't measure it like how do you improve it right so it's about like you know being able to measure correctly as well and this is for sure like this is this is where the industry is going because if you see kind of in the past you could ride a wave with visionary statements from industry around you know yes we're going to reduce our emissions yes you know we're we're on our path but but really, we're very kind of rapidly moving into the point where it, it needs to be proven. So that means that we need to have the data, we need to be able to show measurements, and we need to be able to kind of measure change. That's how we can have a serious scaled up impact on greenhouse gas emissions. But given that Norway is such a huge oil and gas giant, how do you reconcile that with sustainability? It's easy kind of to sit on the outside and be very black and white about it, but this is an extremely complex interconnected energy system that we're talking about here and the truth of it is like whatever way you look at the energy mix oil and gas is going to be a part of it for the foreseeable future because we are just not able to deliver the supply needed today without it so what we have to do what is the responsible thing to do is not to just you know ignore oil and gas but it's actually to work with that industry so that they can produce as sustainably as possible while also doing everything we can to accelerate the renewable space. Can you give us some examples of how you use data to optimize efficiency for sustainability? I mean I can give so many examples but basically we're using data to reduce uh, energy consumption we're using data to kind of optimize like turbines, which are kind of CO2 emitters so that they will have less CO2. We're using data to reduce the raw materials required into processes so that it's actually less usage. And we're using data to optimize maintenance, which maybe doesn't sound directly linked to sustainability, but that's it's all about reducing spare parts. And it's just amazing what you can do when you turn that around and you get that data coming in and you can make decisions based on the actual reality and being able to, you know and also that your prediction of the reality too i think the truth is with the oil and gas industry today and it's so important for oil and gas companies to produce as sustainably and efficiently as possible and i'm in no doubt that it's only those who who will do that that will survive 
But can we achieve those targets, those emission targets through optimization alone? I think we can do a lot with optimization, to be perfectly honest. But at the same time, we we need to accelerate the, the rate of adoption of renewable power. So industry needs to be powered more by renewable energy. It's a lot of things that need to fall and not fall into place, that need to be forced into place mm. for us to have a chance of hitting those targets. But they are extremely ambitious and 2030 is really close. You know, there's a race on. I think companies need to think really smartly about how can they be forerunners in that race and kind of to the point where not everyone can do everything on their own, right? So this is, it's kind of about these kind of clever collaborations really driving forward. And that's a lot around kind of industrial companies. It's a lot around kind of tech companies as well. It's kind of big players and small startups. It's, you know, to navigate this space where you have potential competitors, potential partners, but um, you kind of need to work together. This is, I think this is the challenge of our times. And have you seen this kind of shift in mentality and approach within industry? Absolutely. You know, we commissioned a study with Axios and Harris Poll on this. So we surveyed a lot of industry and energy leaders around kind of their attitudes to sustainability. And it was 93% of them said that tech is like the immediate part of the solution. What the report says is actually what I experience as well, um, kind of talking to like leaders of industry from around the world. And we had our industrial conference on earlier this week and all of these C-level attendees. And then we had a large number of industrial leaders kind of from, from Norway and from Europe. And the common thread that emerged that was not planned or scheduled was collaboration. I think every single leader that sat on that stage talked about the importance of collaboration. And this is a a huge shift I've never seen. And we see it in the dialogues we have as well. I've never seen collaboration being talked about at this level. And like there's very interesting collaborations going on here in Norway around carbon capture and around other renewables. So it's um, it's really exciting to see it in action. But it's really about like that this urgency to move from talk to action like that is that shines through in that report. Um, and also kind of their acknowledgement of what it's going to take to get there as well. You know, they, they do know what's needed, you know, in terms of like data, in terms of in terms of tech. They do know they need to be action oriented. Like I think everyone's seeing the, the writing on the walls for actual, you know, sustainability metrics. So how do you force this change? I mean, is it a is it through regulation or is it through the market or is it through customer demand? You know, it's so important to get the incentives lined up, right? So if we just talk about sustainability from an ivory tower perspective, then what happens? But if we talk about sustainability and it's sustainability is 100% linkable to the bottom line. It absolutely is. And not only that, but also like the these other things like access to capital, which is just massive, right? But li- Sustainability is very easily linked to to the bottom line. And I think that that is absolutely how it should be, because we want industry to use less raw material. We want them to produce. We want them to produce, you know, higher quality. We want less waste. We want things to be as optimal um, as possible. And there's two outcomes from that, one of which is becomes cheaper to run. And then the second one is that uh, it's just far better for the environment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves 
feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So that was Paula Doyle from Cognite in Norway. And a huge thanks to her for giving me her time. Interesting enough stuff. Heart of me. I mean, first thing is I've always, you know, I like statistics. Yes. All that sort of stuff. Number cruncher. I know. And I actually feel that, you know, the sign of a civilized society is a society with good statistics. Not good poetry, not great literature, but good statistics because you measure things. And then once you start measuring, you start thinking about a certain way, comparing. You could also compare the past with the future. You can set targets. It's a way of actually thinking about the world. So, So, I, you know, I think all big data... All good. However, do you remember what Rob was saying last week about the company with the biggest data doesn't make the best decisions? That company, Zillow. The, oh, all yes, the data yeah. on the housing market yeah. doesn't make the best decisions. They were just in the wrong business. Well, that's probably true. So no, so I'm I'm persuaded by the, the data simply because it uh, it reflects the sort of subset brain that I have yeah. that likes all these little subsets of data and econometrics and all that stuff. But that's Next time, we can stick on your duffel coat and come with me over to Norway. I will. Me duffel coat, me Arsenal bag. I'll be there. <laughs> See you next week. Just before you go, thank you all very much for supporting us on Patreon. And also, if you don't support us on Patreon and you want to learn economics, we have this fantastic new course, which has a video element. It has an audio element. It has all the reading lists. It has notes. It has all sorts of bizarre and unusual takes from the world of economics. It's called International Trade and Money. First three lectures are Humanomics, which is about putting humanity back into economics. Second lecture is the trading ape, the idea that we are actually hardwired to trade. And the third is the myth of barter. And of course, this is a 14 lecture series taking us all the way up to crypto. If you want to learn economics, join me on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.